You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for August 2013. Today's episode is titled True Riches. Every day, people around the world go to work. Some work just to survive. Others are trying to accumulate wealth. To most, the term wealth or riches means tangible physical assets. But is wealth more than money or tangible assets? Tangible assets are not true wealth. True wealth or riches are defined by Scripture in terms of alignment with the will and ways of God. We should therefore use money and other tangible assets as tools to align with God. In other words, as tools of obedience to God. As such, tangible wealth should be used to trade up to gain true wealth. This should be the philosophy of stewardship for individuals and for organizations. Living according to this philosophy enables individuals and organizations to accumulate wealth that has eternal significance. As individuals align with the ways of God, true wealth, the organization will deliver increasingly outstanding products and services. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, True Riches. When you think about investing, many of you may think, well, I'm not an investor. But the reality is everyone is an investor. That's, that's the reality of how God's universe works. So let's start out with some common definitions of investing. Uh, this is from uh, the dictionary. In finance, investing is the purchase of a financial product or other item of value with an expectation of favorable future returns. In general terms, investment means the use of money in the hope of making more money. Would you agree? That's what most people would think investing is. Okay. In business, investing means the purchase by a producer of a physical good, such as durable equipment or inventory, in the hope of improving future business. That sound like what a business guy would in, in define investment to be? Y'all awake? Yes. Yeah, you agree? Okay. All right, so that's, those are common definitions. Nothing particularly wrong with those, but they're not very profound. You know, something profound truly takes into consideration all of reality. And frequently what happens in the workplace is we only take into consider, consideration natural reality when we define things. And investing is no different. So let me read you a text. Uh, this is found in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 17. And we'll talk about investments from a more profound perspective. Jesus is uh, with his disciples. They are apparently in the home of Zacchaeus. They've just had an encounter with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus apparently demonstrated that he truly was a son of Abraham. He was a son of faith. And so now, Jesus realizes that the people that he's with have a misunderstanding. Which, may I suggest today that the people that are with Jesus today probably have a lot of misunderstandings? And so he wants to set them straight. He's a loving father. He's a loving son. He's a loving God. And so he wants to order things in our life so we line up our thinking with his thinking. So here he tells them a parable. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to be to, to appear at once. What Jesus is getting ready to tell them is you don't really understand God's plan. And you think that I'm going to physically expel the Roman rulers right now and restore a theocracy. That's what you're thinking. That's not reality. That's not God's plan. Jesus is never here 
in his life, he never seeks to execute his plan. He's always seeking to execute the Father's plan. So he tells them a parable to help them understand reality. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. <coughs> now that is a very common process in that time. Remember, the Roman Empire pretty much dominated the Mediterranean area. They controlled most of that area. So if you were wanting to be king of a certain area, you wanted to be king of Bethlehem, or you wanted to be king of Tyre and Sidon, or you wanted to be king of some other city or some other territory, you would have to petition the Roman government to be granted that authority. And so the way they did it is they literally went to meet with the Roman authorities. So this is a picture that they would have been very familiar with. Most of us, we read it, and we don't connect with that because we don't understand the culture. But the disciples would have fully understood exactly what Jesus was saying here. So this, this man went to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minas. He gave each one a mina. Now, we don't know exactly how much a mina is. Uh, a good guess might be it's about three months' worth of wages. And he says to them, put this money to work until I come back. In other words, I'm giving you an assignment I'm handing to you an asset, I'm giving you an assignment, a temporary assignment, and I want you to do business, conduct business. The word there, the Greek word literally is the word pragmatiomai. What's that sound like to you? Pragmatic, which is the, the worldview of business in most places is pragmatic. And most people by that they mean whatever makes money. Even, even to the point of lying, stealing, cheating, deceiving. Sadly, that's where the world is today. But the word pragmatiomai in and of itself does not imply immorality. It simply means to conduct business. So he says, put this work, money to work till I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be king. So first we have the servants, and now we have the subjects. They're, these are different groups of people. The servants are the ones that he's given the minus to. And they're the ones that have been charged with the responsibility to put this to, to put this minor to work. Reading on, he says this. However, he was made king and returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. You see, Jesus is interested in profit. Uh, there are many out there, I know, in the Christian world that don't think that investing or gaining a profit is a good thing. They would view that as an immoral thing. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus was interested in seeing a profit be earned. The first one came and said, Sir, notice what he says here. Your mina. Wait a minute. Who is it that took that mina and worked with it? It was the servant. But you see, he comes humbly and says, Your mina has earned ten more. His master replied, Well done, my good servant, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. That's quite a promotion, isn't it? Here you're given maybe three months' worth of wages, and some period of time which is not defined, 
And you take that and you multiply it tenfold, which that's a pretty good return over almost any time frame you can think of. And that's good enough now to become a political ruler over ten cities. That's a dramatic promotion. But you, you can see here the importance of investing. Investing here properly becomes the predicate for promotion in the kingdom of God. So when we ask the question, what are investments? They're far more than what you think. It's not just about making money. It's something much more than that. So let me just suggest a principle that I think the miners are referring to. It's a principle I call T3. T3. It stands for time, talent, and treasure. And the reason I, I refer to this is because when you think of your, yourself as an investor, what do you have to invest? What does the miner represent in your life? Well, you have time. God has granted you life. He brought you into this life. He will take you out. There's a time frame that you will live in this existence, and that's something that you're called to steward. And you're called to make a profit with that time. Then you have talent. Talent is the skill and ability that you have. It's what God put in you. Is everybody clear that you're not self-made? We clear on that? I mean, the world tries to make out, pretend like you can be a self-made man. Well, did you create yourself? You decide when you'd be born and who your parents would be and what gifts and talents you would have, and whether you'd be male or female, where you would live, the circumstances of your life, the opportunities you'd be given. Do you decide any of that? Almost none of that. It's all given to you by the master as he says to you, I want you to steward your talents. All the things I'm going to orchestrate in your life, these relationships, these opportunities, these situations, I'm giving it to you for you to steward, to be an investor of those things. And finally, treasure. Now, this is where we mostly think about investing, treasure, which is all about taking a dollar, turning it into $2, or a dollar, turning it into $10. That's what we're looking for. And that certainly is part of it, but that's not all of it. That's just part of it. Properly using your treasure is important. Now, let's be very clear that whatever treasure you have has been given to you. You say, I object. I worked hard for that. Well, who gave you the ability to work hard? Who gave you the opportunity to do whatever you did to earn that money? Who is it that moved in the heart of that person you work for to pay you? Some of you are saying, well, gee, I wish he'd move in the heart of some of my, the people who owe me money. I need to be paid. Well, God's even in that. You see, this world that we're in is a world in which he is sovereignly in control of his universe. Things happen for a reason, and he's the reason. And he's all about taking us and transforming us, using these tools he has of time, talent, and treasure that he's given to us, to change us and transform us. You see, investing is really not about making money, primarily. It's primarily 
about transformation. It's primarily about changing us. It's primarily about giving us an opportunity to grow. Now, you look at that, that servant here that took that one mina and turned it into ten. Do you think that was easy? How many of you are in business? Okay. Is it easy to turn one into ten? How many of you are housewives raising children? Raise your hands. Is it easy to raise those children? Huh? It's not easy, is it? It's not easy to, to take an asset and multiply it tenfold. It's not easy to raise children. Whatever it is that you're doing, you know, you're investing. You're investing your time, talent, and treasure, and it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard work. So when the Lord comes and calls you to account, and by the way, in this, this parable, it's very interesting to know you have both the servants and the subjects. The servants are the ones that are faithful. The subjects are the ones that rejected him. And who is it that's called into account first when he comes back? The servants. Now, the subjects are called to accountability at the end. They're judged. The servants are the ones that are evaluated first. So, guess what? You won't have to wait in line. We're at the front of the queue. When he comes back, he's going to want to talk to us first and say, what did you do with your minus? Are you ready for that question? Most of us are probably not ready for it because we haven't thought a lot about it. So my suggestion here is that this concept of T3 is a good way to see the minus and how we tie it to our lives. I want to make this one other comment here. Haggai 2.8 makes it very clear that the silver is mine and gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. How many of you have silver? How many of you have gold? Many of you have gold. Gold coins of some sort. Maybe you have stock in a gold mine company or something. But gold is a hot thing right now. I think it's about 1600 an ounce the last I saw. And um, it can't decide whether to go up or down. And I understand that. Because we have, we have a, very, a very perplexing world economy which is driven by debt. And is it surprising to you to see where debt is taking us? How many of you have tried to buy a CD recently? Anybody? Okay. What was that like, Dave? Huh? It's 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 well. What what kind of rate did you get? Not too bad. It was right next door, actually. What what did you get? What did I get? What rate? Interest rate. Oh, on the CD. On the CD. Interest rate on the CD. Oh, okay. Has anybody bought a the financial instrument certificate of deposit? What kind of rate did you get? Yeah. And I noticed the statement said we've reduced your rate uh, from 0.5% to 0.05%. Yeah. I had to get my, I'm thinking more, 0.05, that's like 1 20th of a percent. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I, I manage some assets as well, and I can tell you money market accounts are paying about 0.3%. 0.3%. 
3%. CDs, if you can get a half a percent, that's, that's fair, three, three to six months. You might be able to find somebody who really wants your money to pay you 1%, maybe. Now think about that. Stock market is at an all-time high, which makes it really scary right now. CDs, you know, are low. You buy muni bonds. Well, muni bonds, what's going to happen when interest rates go to those muni bonds? They're going down the tank. So you say, hey, where are the good options? It's hard to find a financial <coughs> instrument today to invest in that you have any confidence in. Now, what do you think that is? Driven by this debt, this worldwide debt conundrum we're in, and the latest fiasco was in Cyprus, where the powers that be decided, well, you know the way we're going to solve our debt problem, but we're going to tax, tax bank deposits. How would you feel about that? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I, invest, I put my money in the bank, and now it's going to get taxed because it's in the bank? Well, that was their solution. And it appears they're going to get away with it on some level. I think it's if you've got more than $100,000 in there, that's what they're going to tax. So you see that the world doesn't know what to do. That we've walked into this Keynesian economic trap, which is all driven by debt, and an assumption, a presupposition, that there's no day of reckoning. We can just keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. We don't have to worry about it. Don't have to ever have to pay it back. It will not work. By the way, those of you who are familiar with banking in China, that's one of the things they've got going on over there, is the banks over there are forced by the government to make business loans, and they know many times they're not going to get paid back, but they can't write off the loan, so their balance sheet is a phony balance sheet. Now, what do you think that's going to take us? You see, this is the world that we're in. We're in a world that's, that's abandoned sound biblical thinking about how money is to be managed. And so we're walking into traps. So we better learn how to invest biblically if we want to be wise stewards of the miners we've been given. All right, so regarding physical wealth, tangible assets, let me suggest that there are two types of, of assets or two types of worldly wealth. One of them is worldly wealth, and the other one is true riches. So let me read to you out of Luke 16, verses 10 through 13. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, that word there is mammonos. That's the Greek word, and we, we get the English word mammon from it. It's, it's a reference to the spirit behind money. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling mammonos, who will, trust, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammonos. You cannot do it. That word there, cannot, is the Greek word dunamos. We get dynamite from that. In the Greek, that means power. It means you do not have the power to worship or serve God and mammonos. You have to make a choice. It's not possible. Now, how many of you have ever said, 
I want to be wealthy so I can support kingdom causes. Who said that? Yeah, a lot of us have said that. Scripture tells us that you, you can't do that because you are worshiping mammon by chasing wealth, even though you're trying to justify it with some good reason to chase wealth. We never have a good reason to chase wealth. What we must chase is true riches. Now let me show let's, let's talk about that a second. I'm going to read you another text out of Luke chapter 12. This illustrates the point that we're trying to make. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. And many times when Jesus was talking to his disciples, there was a crowd that would gather around to overhear what he was saying. And at one point, someone yells out and said, Jesus, and he makes a request. So here's what he says. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, now how would you respond to that? You're Jesus, you've got authority to do anything you want to do. And you hear somebody is being cut out of their inheritance, what would you do? Huh? Well, fix this, wouldn't we? Let's be just about this. You need to give your brother his fair share. Wasn't that what we would do? Yeah, that's what we would do. Well, let's see what Jesus did. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Isn't that a strange way to respond? What was he saying there? What he was saying is, God has delegated authority. And one of the ways he's delegated authority is to parents. And it's their responsibility to decide how the inheritance then is to be divided. It is not my purview to trump your father. You see that? You see, Jesus understood authority. This is a statement of submission to authority. It, it looks veiled to us because most of us don't think about authority. Most of us think about being free and independent, being our own, own person. Nobody tells me what to do. I do what I want to do. That's how we live. Jesus didn't live that way. Jesus lived only doing what the Father directed him to do, according to the will of the Father and the ways of the Father. And one of the ways of the Father is authority, working under delegated authority. So Jesus responds and lets, lets him know, you know, it's not my purview to do that. I could do that, but I'm not going to trump the authority that God has put into place. Then he uses that to launch into a discussion. He says, uh, watch out. Be on the, your guard against all kinds of greed. You say what he saw in that guy making, the crest, re, making that request was what? Greed. He saw greed. This man was not content with what his father had decided to do. So those of you that are dealing with inheritance issues, you should be content with what your father decides to do, whatever it is. I know some of you might say, oh, you don't know my father. He was a wicked, you know, cruel man. He doesn't understand. And if I could get that money, we could do great things in the kingdom. Guess what? All the silver and gold belongs to the Lord. You don't have to worry about that. By the way, do you know the context of that text in Haggai 2.8? You, you ever read the, the context? What, what's going on there? Why that verse is there? That verse is dropped in the middle of a discussion of the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. When the people are being sent back to do that, and they're, they don't have the assets to do it. They don't have the resources to do it. And, and what, what Haggai said, don't sweat it. When God gives you an order, 
He's got plenty of provision to take care of it. That's the context. This is why, you know, when Dennis tells you God pays for what he orders, this is one of the texts he would get it from. Okay, he goes on to say, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Hmm, that's interesting. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? You see, he's got an internal conversation going on here. I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, aha, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. Then I will store my surplus grain. And by the way, I've got clients that are farmers and you can store grain a long time. In fact, I was in Canada about a month ago and I had a, uh, a lunch with a man who's in the grain business, and he said, look, there are reports that there are, there's grain in Egypt in the pyramids that goes back two and 3,000 years. I said, really? Yeah, they don't know how, what to do if they you know, get to it, but they believe that it's there because grain, grain is a natural food that can be stored for long periods of time. And you know why we have silos, don't you? Well, farmers, they harvest their grain, they put it in the silo, and they wait till the price is right. When the price is right, then they'll sell it. But until the price is right, they just store it. And grain is very storable. But you got you, there's things you've got to do. You've got to manage the, the humidity and the temperature and things like that. But it's storable. So he said, hey, I can, I can put this away. This is like money in the bank. Build big barns, put the grain in there. I need something. I pull out some grain, I sell it, and I've got what I need. Hey, this is a pretty good deal. What do we call that? We call that retirement. Isn't that what it is? What we're I mean, most of us, that's what we're working for, isn't it? Trying to get to where we don't have to work anymore. That way we can go do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. Isn't that what we're after? Yeah, that's the American dream. You know, get that money as fast as you can so you can quit that nasty job as soon as you can. You can go buy that house you've always wanted and live the way you want to live. That's what the American dream is all about. I hope you see how unbiblical that is so anyway he goes on to say he's this internal conversation continues he says you have plenty of grain laid up for many years take life easy eat drink and be merry it's a great plan isn't it great human plan and then you have two words that ought to scare the willy out of you but god whoa you mean he's got a say in this he does but God said to him, you fool. Now what's a fool? A fool is someone living disconnected with reality. Has no clue what really is going on. A fool is someone who lives based on what he sees. A fool is someone who doesn't really, is not able to see where things are really going. What the ultimate end of life is. And what God is doing in this universe. You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? We're back to that inheritance thing again. We started talking about this inheritance thing and who would get it. Now we're back to that again. Who's going to get it? Just a very practical thing. You see, apparently this man had no sons. He had no heirs. There, and if he did, they weren't trained to be able to steward the assets that he had built up. So, 
he dies that night, and whoever got that, that grain probably was not prepared to steward that asset. And what do you think happened to it? It's gone. It'll be squandered. Because if you don't have stewardship skills to manage whatever you've been given, you'll squander it. Proverbs says, an inheritance quickly gained will soon be lost. See, this is why building stewardship skills is so important. You know, if you want to help someone, help them build stewardship skills. Now they're qualified to be able to steward assets. Sadly, what happens today is so many times someone is able to build an asset base, but they never build the sons and the daughters to, to succeed them, so the asset base gets squandered usually very shortly after they pass. So he says, then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Wait a minute, this guy was rich. He had all kinds of assets, but he's not rich toward God? That means that there are assets that God values beyond money? There are things more important than tangible assets? Things more important than real estate? Than grain in a, in a grain elevator? Things more important than stocks and bonds? Well, apparently so. In God's universe, he's got standards that are different from us. So what might be some of these things that God would value more than money? What could that be? What could be true wealth, true riches, as opposed to worldly wealth? Now, please understand that worldly wealth is something that we need to steward well. But we need to recognize what it is. It's not the ultimate wealth. It's not the ultimate measure of being rich. In fact, let me suggest this. Money is one thing and one thing alone. It is a tool to do the will of God. That's what it is. Money is a tool to do the will of God. And let me suggest this. Until you can see that, until you can really understand that, you will never steward it well. You will make wrong choices over and over again. You've got to be able to see it as a tool to do the will of God. What is your time? It's a tool to do the will of God. What is your talent? It's a tool to do the will of God. You see, these tangible things, time, talent, and treasure, that we can all relate to fairly easily, those are tools. Things that God gives us so now we can go about carrying out His will according to His ways. This is the way Jesus lived. Only to do the will of the Father. So there's got to be assets beyond time, talent, and treasure that God values more than time, talent, and treasure. So what might these assets be? Or another way to look at it is we take time, talent, and treasure and we trade up. You ever traded up? The trading up means that you see something that's more valuable than the asset you have in your hand, so you're going to try to find a way to trade this asset for that asset. Okay, That's trading up. So I, I want that asset more than I want this asset. So I want to trade my time, my talent, my treasure for those assets that God really values. So what might that be? Well, let me give you seven. You think I can come up with seven? Yes. 
Okay? Seven assets that I think God values. If you're a, a good investor, you will value these more important than your time, your talent, or your treasure. Number one is obedience. Obedience to the will and ways of God. I think one of the greatest definitions of success can be found in John 17, 4. Jesus is speaking to the, to the Father in what's known as his high priestly prayer. And he is near the end of his life. He's not dead yet, but he's already done a lot in his life. And at this point, he's praying to the Father, and he gives us what he believes success to be. He says, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. In other words, he was obedient to do his assignment. God had an assignment for him in God's meta-narrative. The word meta-narrative means great story. It's the overarching story of time that we all are, we have a role to play, and Jesus played his role in that, as first as a son, then as a carpenter, and then as an itinerant teacher. Three different phases of his life. And even as a carpenter, he had obviously an apprenticeship phase, and then he became a master carpenter. Those are part of God's plan too. So when he says, I've completed the work, he was referring to everything he's done in his life up to that point. It's all been what the Father has designated for him to do. And so real wealth starts off with obedience to the work assignment God has given you to do. Everyone here has a work assignment. And it will probably go through multiple phases during the course of your life, but every phase counts. Every phase is important, and every phase is part of what God has put you here to do. So obedience, is, to me, is the first true, rich, tr true measure of riches. The next measure of riches, and to me, the obedience is about the will of God, uh, second here is righteousness. Righteousness is about the ways of God. Remember the Old Testament says righteous are his ways? In other words, God in his very nature defines righteousness. He wants us to live consistent with his nature. The Proverbs say that wealth, referring to tangible wealth, is worthless in the day of wrath. But righteousness delivers from death. Tells you right there, righteousness is more important than physical wealth. Now, how do you trade physical wealth for righteousness? Well, it's really pretty simple. I mean, you work, work in companies where customer service is viewed as a, a profit center. Anybody work in a company like that? You've ever heard of that? Where's the, where customer service is viewed as a profit center. So the agenda in customer service is not to serve the customer, but to make money. And so now we're looking for, okay, we got a customer on the line. What can we do to make money with that customer? Okay, We get him to buy another product or we can, you know, get him to trade up or do something. You know, we're trying to get him to give us money. Now that's an example right there where money is trumping service. Now, what would be a godly approach to customer service? Someone who's truly concerned about you and serving you. Well, customer service would then need to be a, a cost center, not a profit center. 
a cost center. If it's cost center, now we are not overly concerned about the cost. We are concerned about you. And when you call in, making sure you get service, you get your problem solved, whatever it takes. How many of you are familiar with EMC? Anybody here? Somebody? Well, you have because you heard the story. You're familiar with it? You're familiar with EMC. You know they nearly went broke 20 years ago. Okay. And they went broke because of manufacturing problems. And they had a man come in who was going to head of their sales department. He went all around the country to all these EMC locations and discovered the problem. And he came back with a very novel solution to the, uh, the management team. He said, here's what we need to do. We need to offer our customers that they can either, we will either give them a new machine, totally free, or we will pay for them to buy a competitor's machine. Either one. And what do you think the management team said to that? <laughs> you nuts? Are you crazy? He said, do you want to salvage this business? He said, well, yes. He said, you're going to have to do something radical here. Radical customer service to show them you really are concerned about them and it doesn't matter what happens to you. They did that and that saved the company. From then on, the company became a very service-oriented company. Everything was about service. In fact, you could call that company and it did not matter who answered the phone because everybody was in customer service, even the engineering department. You know how when you call customer service in most companies, you've got to go through these multiple layers. You know, it takes a long time. They're wearing you down. So you really want to spend two or three hours to get the answer to this or not. You know, hopefully you won't, and you, what you'll do is you'll just give up and finally just buy a new product, and then we win. See, that's what they're after. Now, at EMC, what happened was everybody was in customer support. So if you need to talk to an engineer, it's not a problem. I mean, you get to him in a matter of a minute or two. They'd pick up the phones and answer service calls. Everybody supported the customers. And they got so fanatical about this, they developed a system where all of their, all the computer systems they developed were connected to a, a hub in the company, and they monitored these systems. And they could tell when things were going bad. They could get signals, and they started sending out servicemen to, to customer sites before the equipment failed. One time, there's a story about them going out to a bank, and this was a bank that had a lot of security, and so they knock on the door, the guard comes to the door, and he says, I'm from EMC, and I'm here to service the computer problem. The guard picks up the phone and calls down there, and he says, there's not any computer problem. He says, oh, well, there's going to be. He says, well, how do you know? He says, well, our system picked it up. There's a hard drive about to fail. I'm going to hear, I'm going to fix it before it fails. They were totally stunned. They'd never had anybody do something like that before, come out and fix the problem before it happened. And knowing it was about to happen, and the customer didn't even know it was about to happen. There's another story about a time when, when uh, EMC was called and the customer told EMC the problem, and they did all this troubleshooting and realized it was not their problem. It was a problem with IBM software. And so they called IBM and told the system engineers what the problem was and worked with the IBM system engineers to help them solve the problem. So when it's all over, the customer had no clue that EMC was not the culprit there. All they know is East EMC fixed the problem. Have you ever had anybody do that? What happens when, when you call people, the first thing they want to tell you is it's what? Not our problem. 
Doesn't matter what it is, it's not our problem. You know, because this is the way we are today. We, we are about putting off blame and making money and minimal cost to customer service. So I don't know why I told you all that, but that's to say something about righteousness. That is very unrighteous in how we're doing customer service today by and large. <clears throat> Maybe I'm frustrated with that. Do you think I might be? <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. It's so sad. When I see EMC and I say, wow, what a great picture. You know, what would it look like if, if Christians really functioned that way? Wow, in the power of the Spirit, where could that go? That could be incredible. All right, number three, an asset that's more important is you should trade time, talent, and treasure to get this asset is wisdom. Proverbs 8 says, wisdom is better than silver or gold. Now, how many of you would pick wisdom over silver or gold? few of you would. I like it. About a third of you said yes. The rest of you didn't raise your hands, which tells me a lot. Most of you, I'd rather have silver or gold, frankly. You know, who cares about the wisdom? I got silver or gold. I go have fun, right? Don't need wisdom. That's how we think. You know, see, we don't value what, what God values. You hear that? Look at me. We don't value what God values. That's, is that a big problem? Is that a big problem in your life? If it's not, Lord help you. Because in the end, when, you, when your hearse is taking you to the cemetery, it's not going to be towing your assets behind. <laughs> your assets are left here for whatever sons and daughters you prepare to steward them. And if you haven't done a good job of that, you're going to be like this rich man here. We've got to value what God values. So wisdom is the thing he values. Wisdom is the skill to live well in God's universe based on how his universe works. All right, number four. Reputation. Reputation is better than silver or gold. You can see this in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 1. The text reads, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Wow. See, we don't, that's just foreign to us. It's hard for us to identify with that because we are so caught up with worldly thinking. The world doesn't value reputation except as a tool to make money. We need to value reputation because it's better than money. It's because it's God values this. You know, sometimes I wonder what his checklist is going to be, what it's going to look like when we're held accountable. If he's not going to go down these things like this and say, okay, let's just see how obedient you were. Let's just see how righteous you were, how much wisdom you exercised, what your reputation was. Now, how would you like to be evaluated based on that? Well, probably you will be. A whole lot more likely you'll be evaluated based on that than how much money you made, how many assets you accumulated. All right, number five, respect. This is a real interesting one here. Proverbs 11, verse 16. A kind-hearted woman gains honor. But ruthless men gain only 
wealth. That grief, whoa, whoa. You mean respect or honor is more important than wealth? Well, apparently, just to God it is, because he put this in his scripture. Number six, stewardship skills. We saw that to get true wealth in Luke 16, you had to steward physical wealth well. In other words, how you manage your time, your talent, your treasure is what qualifies you now for true wealth. Let me give you an example of this. How many of you have ever rented anything? Rented a car, rented an apartment, rented anything? Everybody, most of you have rented something. Now, how did you treat that property that you rented? Huh? <laughs> Some of you may have treated it well. But probably most of you were like my daughter. A few years ago, I was in Houston where my daughter lived. This has probably been more like 10 or 12 years ago now. And she was driving a car that I had bought for her. And I was not always wise in the cars that I bought for my daughters. Uh, I had one daughter that was kind of flashy and one that was practical. Okay? The one that's practical drives a Prius today. The one that's flashy is always looking for a sports car to drive. So I bought her uh, just a little, you know, kind of a sporty car. And so we're driving along the street. And you know, Houston is not a great place to drive because they don't take great care of their streets. And so she is uh, pushing the speed limit, and she goes flying over these railroad tracks. And we get to the other side, and she hits, and she bottoms out. Well, I'm in the passenger seat, and I'm, this is the car that I bought for her. I said, you know, that's a little fast, don't you think? <laughs> she said, oh, I'm not worried. It wasn't my money. <laughs> now, that's how we think, isn't it? Yeah, that's how we think. Yeah, it's not my money. I'm not worried about it. Now, if it had been her earned money that had bought it, she would have felt differently. But since it was my money, she, did, she didn't mind, you know, tearing up the car a little bit. Well, she didn't get the stewardship skills that I tried to teach her. Hopefully she's learning those skills now. Now that she's a mom, and she's going to, guess what, get to see some of this same thing coming back on her. Yeah. Guess what? Yeah, it's, that's the way God's universe works. So one of the tests of how you really are stewarding things is how you steward other people's property. When you rent something, you're renting someone else's property. They, they are the steward of that property. You have bought the use of that property for a period of time. And you need to treat that as if you were the chief steward of that piece of property. I always try to return rent cars in better shape than I can than I, when I took it. For example, the rent car, which I, I got a Prius here, so economical, but when I left the airport, I said, I want to buy the, the option for, you know, you give me a full time. Okay? That way I can take it back with however much gas, you know, is in it. And it's, you know, they just, they just charge me a full, full tank. I don't have to worry about filling it up. And I always try to take it back with 
with gas in there. I don't try to go in there with empty. Because one of the ways I can help them is I can I can bless them a little blessing here with a little gasoline. I can also take it back, you know, relatively clean with things in order. Things cleaned out of the car, no trash in the car. A fairly simple process then for vacuum it, wash it, and it's ready to go again. Well, that's a simple thing I could do to help them steward the asset they're stewarding. It doesn't take much for me to do that. Or I could take the attitude, attitude well, I, I don't worry about this. I'll just trash it up and I'll, I'll break back on empty. You may, have to, you may have to push it back because I'm not going to put any gas in it. You know? just, it's all about me. It's not about really this asset that someone else is stewarding and I have an opportunity to help them steward it. See, this is how you test stewardship skills. How do you treat someone else's property? Same way with a, an apartment you might rent, or a house that you might rent, or any kind of assets that you rent. What I try to do is I look at everything that I have, everything that I steward, whether I technically have an ownership of it or not, is something I steward. Like my home that we're in right now. Someday, we're not going to be in that home. So, yeah, we may own it right now, technically, but someday we're not going to be there, so what I want to do is I want to care for it now. I want to make decisions now in light of 20 years and 30 years out. I don't want to make decisions saying, well, gee, I'm only going to be here another year, so I'll just, I'll just cut the cord here and do something simple. No, I want to make a decision that would be good for the next person that's going to steward. Do you, you think that way? And you're, you're saying, well, gee, that costs extra money. Yeah, it does. It costs extra money. It costs extra time. What have you done? You've traded up. You traded money for real wealth, for true riches. You're showing yourself to be a good steward. Okay? And number seven. And I, I think arguably this is one of the greatest investments that you can make. One of the greatest things that God treasures in every one of us, and that is discipleship. Discipleship. That's not only you being a disciple, but you making disciples. You can see the Apostle Paul really understood this. Look what he said to the Thessalonians. He said, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. He's talking to his spiritual children here. The men and women that he's discipled, and he's helped grow and mature in Christ. These are things he treasured. He invested money to do this. He invested time to do this. He invested his talent to do this. I think discipleship is argued one of the, one of the greatest of all true riches is when you make disciples of Jesus Christ, you have got gold, spiritual gold in your hands. Okay, so now what I want to do, see I've spent now almost an hour and I've only got through the introduction. Um, I guess we're not going to make it through all I had here. <clears throat> but I want to get you a biblical definition of, of investments. We started out talking about common accepted definitions. So now I want to give you a biblical definition of investing. 
And I want to challenge all of you that everyone here is an investor. You invest your time, your talent, your treasure. Let's see if we can come up with a good definition. <clears throat> investing, investing is the adroit stewardship of the tangible and intangible assets of a person or organization's time, talent, and treasure in alignment with the will and ways of God. I'll read again. Investing is the adroit stewardship of the tangible and intangible assets of a person or organization's time, talent, and treasure in alignment with the will and ways of God. What do you think of that? Got to ponder that a while? Huh? Adroit means a very skilled. Very skilled. It's the adroit. Yeah, I think it's in the book. I didn't. I, didn't, I guess you forget. I didn't follow the notes. You know, Catherine has me prepare these notes. You know, six weeks ahead of time, and I had a lot of revelation between then and now. <laughs> Sorry. I was, in fact, right before I came over here, I was upstairs. I made some changes even then. You know, so that's what it is. Um, my wife calls me a tweaker. You know what a tweaker is? You know, you're never satisfied. You can always do it better. So, you know, God may be this way. I know there's a role for tweakers. Okay. So everybody got the definition? Investing is the adroit stewardship of the tangible and intangible assets of a person or organization's time, talent, and treasure in alignment with the will and ways of God. I always want to use my time, talent, and treasure to the best of my ability, and I will never be perfect, but I'm always looking to improve, to discern what God is doing, and to do it His ways. Put my resources... In line, line up my resources with him wherever that takes me and it will take you counterculture just like you saw with EMC would you agree that EMC, what EMC did with customer service was counterculture has anybody ever seen anything like that reminds me of a movie one time where a guy said I've never never seen anything like that I've never even heard anything like that that's, that's a phenomenal level of thinking. It's, 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 it's as biblical thinking as I've seen in any organization, That and I don't know if anybody there knows the Lord. I don't know what their spiritual condition is, but just to think that. In fact, there was an article written in Fast Company about EMC, and the writer of this article said this. It said, EMC looks like God. I said, wow. A secular writer to write that in Fast Company? EMC looks like God. And that was in big, bold letters in the article. Wow, that's just amazing. So what happens if we start functioning like that? We really value what God values and invest as He wants us to invest. Where does that take us? Where does it take us in our homes? Where does it take us in our churches? Where does it take us in our businesses? Where would it take our community? Where would we go? I think you saw a glimpse with Paul Jaley of what, what one little congregation could do in touching a community. Now, was there a lot of work involved? 
It take a lot of time, a lot of talent. Took treasure too, but they put it all in there for what? True riches. It was all about real wealth. It wasn't about, you know, this life. Many people look at that and say, well, you're just wasting your money, wasting your time. Those people, they're incorrigible. You'll never convert them. They'll never listen. They hate the pilgrims. They hate Christ. Paul said, no, we'll pray for them. We're going to keep sowing seeds. We're going to keep investing our time, talent, and treasure and serve our community any way we can. That's the attitude of a real investor. All right, let's see. We have maybe three or four minutes. You want to do an exercise? You want to answer a question? Sure. All right. Let's see. How challenging should we make this? Um, is it okay to buy a lottery ticket with the goal in mind of, if you win, using the proceeds to support mission work and contribute to your church's building campaign? Is that a good investment? There are a lot of pastors that would probably appreciate that if you bought that lottery ticket for them. You're saying, no, you wouldn't do that? Is investing in a church building program a biblical investment? You're not as fast on that one, are you? Is it? Huh? If, I'm sorry, I'm not, I can't hear you. If you trust in the vision of your pastor. Okay. Yeah, we do, do need facilities to, to meet in, don't we? So it's possible. But would you say that, have you seen some of the buildings that have been built in recent years? I think the First Baptist Church in Dallas has just spent $130 million, I believe that's right. $130 million for their downtown facility. Okay. Now... So would you invest in that? How would you go about discerning whether to invest in that? What would you do? Pray. Well, that's a good thing to pray. What else would you do? Yeah, you can look at their history and see what they've done. What? That's right. That's what he was saying. Look at the history. Look at how they steward things. What about look at their fruit? What are they producing? <coughs> are they producing real disciples of Jesus Christ? Isn't that what a church is supposed to produce? Were churches called to build buildings? Were they called to have meetings? Where were they called to have meetings? What, what is it that Jesus commissioned us to do? Make disciples. Disciples who follow Jesus truly do that. That's the measuring stick. Are you making disciples or not? So if you're going to invest in anything in your local church, you've got to look and say, are we making disciples? Where's the fruit? And you can't just listen to somebody's platitudes about that. How many of you are familiar with Willow Creek? If you were familiar with the study that was done, Willow Creek hired a consultant. They spent, I think, $3 million to hire this consultant. And basically, Willow Creek understood that the measure of a church is discipleship. 
So they had this consultant come in and evaluate, are we making disciples? The conclusion was they were not. The conclusion was that the people that were interested in growing in Christ had left Willow Creek. And Willow Creek was left with people that just wanted to play church, just wanted to be entertained. You know, that's all. They, they were not serious about growing in Christ. Willow Creek then wrote a book okay, called Reveal, and in that book they admitted they were a failure as a church. They said that. They got this big building, this big staff, all these programs, big budget, all the stuff, all the glitz and glamour of the mega churches, and they're saying we're a failure. So phase two of the study is, well, what do we do about this? So then they bought, they, they wrote a book called Follow Me. And in this book, they reveal that the solution to their problem is to go back and make disciples like Jesus did. Go back and start teaching people the Bible, start walking with people, holding them accountable, you know, praying with them, helping them grow in Christ. So that's the solution. Now, what do you think's happened? By the way, those two books were written about seven or eight years ago now. So we're now eight years down the road from all of this fanfare. What do you think's happened? Uh, it has not struck, believe it or not. Do you know what's happened? They haven't done anything different. Oh, oh my goodness. $3 million later, they yes. haven't changed? Nope. Nope. <laughs> not that I can tell. I mean, I'm looking out there. They engaged a lot of the, the Christian churches across America in this study. They even developed a survey where you could assess your church against what they learned. And so there's churches all across the country. I mean, scores and scores of churches that have gone through their material. They've had conferences and seminars and all kinds of things to train people. But, you know, from what I can tell, nobody wants to talk about this. And Willow Creek, I keep looking for some sign. Are you going to do anything? Is that their motive? I don't know what their motive is. I mean, I'm not close enough. I'm looking at it from afar, looking and saying, are you going to do what you said you're going to do and follow me, which is now go back. They even said in the book, if we do this, we will shrink. We will get smaller. So I keep waiting for something to happen. So far, I haven't seen anything. They just have to pay off the building before they make a I don't know. I mean, I'm not throwing rocks at them. I'm just looking at it and saying, what's going on? Okay. But I, I think this, this is the typical pattern that's going on. We don't measure church success according to Scripture. We measure it by worldly standards. Okay? Yeah, Dave. I think the truth be said, though, if you went to most churches in America and gave that same test, I'm not sure that uh, that many, whether there were 100 people or 20,000, would pass that test as part of the being disciples. Our, our church, a couple thousand people, we found through it, and we realized that, you know, until we went to a home group and started to really push on that yep. relational side of things and then reaching out to it could very well be that they really have a desire to do it but the task is so daunting yes. they don't know how to bridge from where they are to where they know they want to be it's like wow how do we do this I mean, it's a, it's, like, it's a big organization. 
It's huge. So it's a, it's a very daunting problem. But see, if we're, gonna, we're, we're investors, we're going to invest our time, talent, and treasure, we've got to ask the question, where are we getting a return on our investment? And the return in the church world is disciples. And so if I don't see that, why would I invest in that? All right, our time is up. Um, you want to ask one more? This is a real sticky one here. You, you, you sure you want this? All right. This will be our last question. Of course, this may be the end of the conference here. Should you invest in a company that supports the gay agenda? That it was politically incorrect. Are you ready to stand up for that one? You will get some very, very angry responses to that. Are you ready for that? Do you, you know, there's a foundational question in investing. I'm sorry we didn't have a chance to explore this more, but the question that you should be asking with every investment decision is, is this an investment that God will bless? Isn't that where you want to invest? Where God's going to bless? Well, he does not bless things that don't line up with his will and his ways. And you've got to be prepared in the culture we're moving into where the biblical standards are being rejected in our public policy that it's going to be harder and harder to find companies that will follow the will and ways of God. It'll be harder and harder to find investments that God will bless. Well, did you want to talk about that one? Multi-level marketing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, would you invest in a multi-level marketing company? Okay. A lot of people do. Yeah. There's also a, a kind of a subset of that called direct selling. Uh, it's they, they claim they're not multi-level marketing. The distinction there seems to be a multi-level marketing company is focused on recruiting people to be part of the downline, whereas a direct selling company is more focused on selling the product. And the direct selling company probably is more, more something to consider than a multi-level marketing company. Yes? Um, as far as investing, are you talking about just finances or even time? Time, talent, and treasure. So what about like whenever Jesus is sitting with, you know, like uh, prostitutes and different things, I mean, he's investing his time. So mm -hmm. going back to the uh, age and the, I mean, how, how does that, yeah. Well, I think there, it, there's nothing wrong with investing in people that are pagan. You, if the Lord leads you into a relationship where you're, you're spending some time with them to invest in them, to try to bring the testimony of Christ to them, that's a, that's a good thing. But you need to be following the leading of the Lord. Don't just presume you're supposed to do that. Let him lead you. It's another thing now to turn around and write a check to support an organization that supports that agenda. Because if we understand Romans 1 correctly, what Romans 1 tells us is that the homosexuality is a sign of judgment rising in the culture. When homosexuality is rising, judgment is rising. So you're potentially investing in a company that's under judgment. It's just a matter of when that judgment is going to show up. So that's the challenge. We can spend a lot of time talking about that, obviously. It's a big issue in our culture today. Worldwide it is. Okay. One last question and we'll go. Anybody got anything? 
Yeah, they we invest in a company owned by a proud Christian. God opposes the pride, proud. I think the same question. God opposes the proud. You ever thought about that? Have you, are you aware that God may, be opposed, may have opposed you in your life? <laughs> Anytime you were in pride, God was opposing you. And sometimes maybe what you attributed to Satan wasn't Satan. It might have been God opposing your pride. Your pride. That's a scary thought. I mean, I'm a believer. Why would God oppose me? He opposes the pride. All right. Well, good session. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope we gave you a great Lord, we just speak a blessing over each person here to learn to be truly biblical investors, to think as you think, to act as you would act, to represent you well, so that your kingdom may be advanced into every one of us to accomplish your purposes, your will according to your ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, bless you guys.